Cushing, we have a problem. This was the week where a West Texas intermediate settlement issue became the biggest burning factor in the parish without a single barrel going up in smoke. As we record, somewhere out there in exchange traded derivatives land are at least half a billion dollars in unaccounted losses floating around the system. That's before we start thinking about China and the rest of the world and the exchange traded products business. These were accrued as a result of the meltdown settlement when oil prices went negative, exacerbated by a problem some had been complaining about for 12 years and more. My name is Patrick L. Young. Welcome to the Bourse Business Weekly Digest. It's the Exchange Invest Weekly Podcast. Regardless of whether CME are hoping their Cushing crash amounts to a temporary storm in an oil drum or are just in plain denial, there's evidence the market is moving away from the one-time dominant monopolist. Cushing we have a problem is now a key phrase for the parish. It's always sad that for all the great efforts of so many parishioners in ensuring uptime during the Covid crisis, it ends up being oversight failures that help to plunge us into a mar of headlines. Fortunately, the media mostly think it's just an oil price problem. They don't quite realise how much of a pricing due to contract oversight issue is looming and just how many lawsuits are liable to be triggered to resolve, or not, a series of issues which ought never to have been allowed to happen in a holistic, managed environment. I'm only going to skim across the surface of the issues here in this podcast. The full story has been an exchange invest daily for the past week. It was worth a subscription for the past seven issues alone, including our unique Sunday special. So, CME beat their estimates, but ultimately the sludgy oil settlement conundrum dragged them down. From the start of this crisis, CME messaging has been poor. When they sent Terry Duffy out to CNBC, the TV autocuties of the retail financial news channel didn't really appreciate the scale of the problem, but Chairman and CEO Duffy opened up by noting on 22nd of April, The small retail investors are somebody that we do not target. We go for professional participants in our marketplace. Yet a week later on his Q1 analyst call, the self-same supreme commander of the CME stated, Our retail business was up more than 70% growth with considerable strength in the US, Europe and Asia. Does somebody sense at least an e-micro if not an e-mini of contradiction between these statements? Elsewhere, Duffy added the following. The headlines were not good on day one. I think that was a lot because a lot of people didn't understand exactly what happened. That narrative has changed dramatically. I'm sure you've seen. So I think that the narrative and the headline associated with what went on in negative pricing is completely different than it was a week ago, Monday. So I just want to make sure that we're clear on that. Ladies and gentlemen, the problem with this assertion, do I really need to even finish that sentence? Then we got on to what was a remarkable series of assertions in their own right about WTI and also a key competitor benchmark Brent Crude. CME appears to have sought to smear competitors with not having deliverable products while persistently suggesting their own processes are perfect. Ultimately, this WTI contract went negative driven by the storage issues with the CME WTI contract specification which was originally designed in 1983. 
In other words, at the time when the most popular programme on television was Dallas the Soap Opera, and indeed it was four years before President Reagan even got to the Berlin Wall and demanded Mr Gorbachev tear down this wall. The WTI delivers into Cushing, where even 12 years ago folks were asking for other delivery points, and indeed WTI Houston has been regarded as a better benchmark by many for a decade or more. I would have thought that disconnect, which let's face it actually drove a negative price settlement as the Cushing queue grew, is entirely within the purview of CME to fix. The problem is, we now have a billion of losses in China and already the Bank of China discovery process is ongoing. We can likely expect litigation there as we have already seen over the problems with WTI contracts in India and Russia attracting their respective lawsuits. In essence, the chances the CME is not going to be drawn into at least one major lawsuit is looking remote. That means brand damage for CME and all manner of impact upon the parish of Borses. In other sad news this week, the refinitive takeover by LSE hit another pricing issue, presuming LSE can still reprice the deal, of course. Refinitive's data race struggle highlights LSE challenge, went the headline in the Financial Times. A tragedy is unfolding here. I previously have noted we may have seen the highs of London Stock Exchange Group stock for quite some time. COVID-19 adds fuel to that decline. LSEG have committed to buying an asset which was shedding customers and market share even before the lockdown. Hereafter, we all know the retention of terminals in a recession will be tough. The worries arise that this was a deal where a naive or greedy LSE management team plunged forth to do the transformational deal thing without readily appreciating just what they were assessing. Refinitive dropping another percentage point in market share leaves me scratching my head. About the deal, that is, the decline of Refinitive itself is a hard-coded reality of 30 failed years of management reform. Why does LSEG want this deal at which it has no coherent track record of scale integration. Remember, London Stock Exchange Group forecast a keg or a compounded annualised growth rate of 5-7% to in the first three years after they finally take control of this poison chalice. Given the macroeconomic outlook, if they can do that, they will be icons. The tragic reality is they look to be sticking to icon. Exchange Invest is the daily must-read by the most influential figures operating the world's best markets. We invite you to join the exclusive group of Bourse bosses and other C-suite executives who make Exchange Invest the Exchange of Information, their daily business intelligence guide to markets the world over. Exchange Invest is available to subscribers at US$200 per user per year or currency equivalent. You can get more details at exchangeinvest.com or email me, patrick at derivativesvision.com. Over in COVID news, not a lot specifically, although the New York Stock Exchange could reopen its floor in phases beginning in May. And indeed, they're already talking about reopening their San Francisco options floor, which I think a lot of people didn't even realize still existed from the heady days of the Pacific Coast Exchange where it was originally installed. In results, we had a cornucopia. They were all great, albeit not that many people noticed against the background of the Cushing crisis. Deutsche Börse, Japan Exchange, Bursa Malaysia, Intercontinental Exchange, all should take a bow, as should the Singapore Exchange, S&P Global and MSCI, amongst the parish companies that reported excellent numbers against the backdrop of a very volatile high-volume quarter. In deals, we had one spectacular deal pivot. 
Euronext are strengthening their post-trade business by acquiring VP Securities, the Danish central securities deposit. They're acquiring circa 70% of VP Securities, which means they're paying net-net around about 150 million euros and they will actually offer a tender to buy the whole thing. The transaction doubles their central securities depository business in size of Euronext. But the key issue is it's a remarkably granular effort by Euronext to make acquisitions. But at the same time, it shows a paradigm shift. Ultimately, Stefan Buna is leaving no stone unturned as he seeks to acquire assets across the EU. The CSD shift is clearly in line with my long-standing Great Game thesis on the future carve-up of Euroclear. On the other hand, the original Jean-Francois Theodore design for Euronext allowed post-trade to be more owned by the users, the sell-side users indeed too. Bunanext is clearly a soup-to-nuts provider of everything imaginable and heads towards being a vertical silo. TradeWeb, they managed to get away a fully-priced, upsized follow-on offering, removing some more of their bank shareholders, although of course Refinitiv remains the majority owner there. Meanwhile, Nasdaq knocked out some senior notes and Six sold part of their stake in Worldline, which helps them fund the takeover of the BME, the Spanish exchange. If you're looking for some reading during lockdown, if you're seeking inspiration in these hyper-volatile times for markets where career paths are often looking decidedly imprecise, I have a recommendation. If you're trying to get a handle on how technology is affecting life and markets, there's a new book to help you. 20 years on from the excitement of the original fintech bestseller Capital Market Revolution, it's time to look at some of those loose strands hanging around which need a spot of perspective, whether you're an exchange parishioner, a fintech professional, or anybody just trying to stay abreast of where technology is now driving investments and finance. Victory or Death, Blockchain, Cryptocurrency and the Fintech World is an easy read explaining the differing and diverging role of banks and exchanges explaining the winning business models of the new world order and placing in perspective just what Bitcoin, blockchain and cryptocurrency means for markets. It's 70,000 words of pure play PLY pith, pacily discussing matters of moment and revisiting the original trailblazing first fintech bestseller, Capital Market Revolution, which when published in 1999 proved, if I do say so myself, rather prescient. It's a binary world. Your career will sustain or collapse in the next stage of the digital world, hence the title Victory or Death lest you need reminding of the exciting times for finance in which we are living. Victory or Death is published by DV Books and is distributed by Ingram Worldwide. Meanwhile, while you're waiting for your copy of Victory or Death to arrive, after the podcast, try our Pugcast. IPOVID, in Patrick's opinion, comes to the small screen with a series of investor videos with my guest star, Toby the Pug. Cumex News this week, Warburg Bank faces $173 million worth of tax bills after the Cumex trial. Elsewhere in Dubai, the Dubai financial market officially launched their Dubai Clear and Dubai CSD. All the best to them in enhancing post-trade services. Over in People News. Very interesting to see that after only four months, the CEO of BACT, the cryptocurrency initiative from the Intercontinental Exchange, has resigned. Mike Blandina is leaving the company to pursue a new opportunity, allegedly to be something or other at JP Morgan. I must admit that even from afar, Blandina appeared just too corporate to me to really fit into the nimble, innovative and responsible decision-making structure of BACT, and indeed its parent company Intercontinental Exchange. 
I've no idea whether this is correct or whether he just got lots of money to go back to old-style corporations and old-style corporate banking. However, it strikes me, backed CEO is a job worth indulging in hand-to-hand combat with the Viet Cong to secure. Bring it on, I say. Certainly, I cannot imagine why anybody would want to leave a senior-backed job as this venture represents the future being brought to life. Thanks for listening to Exchange Invest Weekly. We welcome your feedback. You can contact me directly, patrick at derivativesvision.com with any comments. Meanwhile, if you enjoyed this show, we would welcome you giving us a thumbs up. Or if you have time, a positive review will always be welcome wherever you find this podcast. In product news this week, the bulletin has been dominated so far by discussion about what happens when benchmarks are badly designed, prove no longer fit for purpose, and are poorly managed. The issue of a LIBOR replacement continues to be an obsessive push by the political regulatory blob industrial complex, and I can't help but feeling a few of those cheap barrels of crude ought to be emptied over a few heads in the blob to help add a little perspective to just how much we are playing with fire in the world of interest rates right now. Technology news, NZX have been apologising for the fact that their market suddenly had four times as much volume, which was causing the systems to rather creak. That was a pretty astounding message volume. Meanwhile, Nasdaq have launched a new risk modelling service for the insurance industry in the cloud. They took the insurance assets of Sinober, which had one of those awful Scandi brand names for the... I can't even remember what it was. It was one of those once-read, forever-confused brand names, Perdizium or something turbocharged the risk modeling software, added it to the cloud, and Nasdaq sent it back out to earn its keep. Over in crowdfunding, Lending Club have slashed roughly 30% of their workforce as COVID-19 dampens demand for loans. The online lender is going to lay off 460 people, about a third of its current workforce. Indeed, as we look at crowdfunding right now, everybody seems to have a credit problem, whether it's the counterparties or the platforms themselves. And that leaves us with Big World. Well, first of all, there was a WeWork update via the lens of its major investor, SoftBank. How could we describe WeWork? Well, it's the gift that keeps on bleeding. In economic statistics, only one we need to think about. I mean, apart from the fact that, what, 22 million people have now claimed unemployment benefit during the course of the last four weeks alone in the United States of America. In the United Kingdom, the Purchasing Managers Index, which remember, if it reaches about 47, everybody gets really, really scared we're in recession, that hit 12.9 during April. That is, of course, against a backdrop of everybody seeking a bailout. Actually, hold that thought. Make that lots of people seeking bailouts, but count us out. As I explained on a Medium post, also shared in a shorter version on LinkedIn this week, there's no such thing as bailout money only taxpayers' money. Exchange Invest doesn't have the resources to join Nasdaq and ICE in their multi-million dollar funding of support during these COVID times, which I thoroughly applaud. However, I believe as a small entrepreneur, it is my duty of self-reliance to support my business and my staff. We are a zero furlough zone at Exchange Invest. With our resources, we will carry on, we will podcast, and we will produce the daily newsletter of the Borth business for a long, long time to come. Your support is therefore appreciated for the Exchange Invest podcast, ideally by subscribing to our newsletter. But whatever occurs, we will not burden the government's coffers in maintaining our business. Ladies and gentlemen, on that bombshell, good luck, stay healthy, and have a great week in markets. I want you all to succeed. My name is Patrick L. Young. Thanks for listening. Thank <laughs> you.
This show relates to the business of bourses. It is not to be construed as investment advice, nor are we making any investment recommendations. Please consult an investment advisor before you make any investments, and for goodness sake, do your due diligence and do not make investments without complying with the regulations in your home state. Exchange Invest cannot be held responsible for any investment decisions made as a result of our programme, which is for entertainment purposes only. The material herein is copyright Patrick L. Young at the date of publication, while our music and sound effects are sourced from copyright-free sources. Thanks for listening to Exchange Invest Weekly, the exchange of information.